The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Welcome back to another episode of the State House Takeout. And uh, as the two branches of the state legislature are constitutionally required to meet every 72 hours, so are we required to meet every seven days down here in the McNicholas room of the State House. Um, let's uh, do a little roll call just to make sure that everybody got in on the tee to work today. Uh, we've got uh, Colin Young, Katie Lannon, and uh, Chris Lasinski. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. We're already violating our, our contract. We took last week uh, off to celebrate the 125th. Oh, you're right. So we did. So we did. Hope folks enjoyed our uh, our little 125th anniversary look back last week. But uh, yeah, the uh, the tea has been an interesting uh, system for uh, some of us and certainly a lot of folks out there to navigate this week. Uh, and actually, Chris, we're starting with you because you're going to talk a little bit about that and you've got to go navigate the tea yourself this afternoon on your way to a press conference uh, with Steve Poftak. Crisis was the word that a number of people used this week to refer not just to the second derailment in four days, but to refer to the tea at large. Two derailments on uh, on two different lines in, in the span of four days. Uh, any common thread there? They're, they're opening an investigation. The only common thread that I think we have at this point is that neither seems to be foul play. Uh, um, MBTA officials came out fairly quickly after the Saturday derailment on the green line um, and described that as something caused by operator error. Uh, Tuesday's derailment on the red line, we still don't have a cause for that three or four days afterward. Uh, as you mentioned, this afternoon, Steve Poftak, the general manager, and the deputy Gen- general manager are going to provide some updates on repairs and how service is going to be impacted going forward as well. But this has been a pretty bad one as far as MBTA derailments go. This is the fourth one we've seen this calendar year. But to my recollection, I think these are the worst impacts we've seen out of all of those incidents because this wasn't just a train coming off the tracks, you know, uh, moving slowly. This was a train that came off the tracks and did significant damage to uh, to those tracks themselves, to signal infrastructure at the JFK UMass station. Some of those photos of um, the side just scraped off of, what was that, a signal bungalow? Yeah, signal bungalow basically tore through a part of that and so as a result uh um Today on Friday, what is that? Three days after the derailment, yeah. we still have MBTA workers out giving signals to one another by hand manually, not using the electronic signal system to say when red line trains can safely move from station to station. The MBTA is estimating still that commuters should anticipate an extra 20 minutes of travel time. I'm curious for our red line commuters if that's actually an accurate estimate. Yeah, I apologize if the sound of me grinding my teeth uh, over here has come <laughs> through the mics. Um, <clears throat> 20 minutes extra is a, a good starting point, I'd say. Uh, I have one of the, what should be one of the easiest red line commutes uh, between Park Street and Andrew Station. Uh, only four stops, and yet it's been, um, I'd say this week, it's averaged about an hour for me getting uh, into work or out of work door-to-door, it's typically a 25-minute trip for me, uh, and it's been an hour this week. 
And this has been affecting commuter rail passengers also, and there's there's ripple effects right throughout the system. Yep, so commuter rails are moving more slowly as well. Um, we saw lots of delays at South Station yesterday, photos all over Twitter of uh, just train after train after train running farther behind schedule and expected. The MBTA has added um, access to the commuter line for uh, passengers who would be affected by you know red line service being out of touch, um, but we've also heard reports of those trains as a result being incredibly overcrowded and moving more slowly than anticipated. Um, we've seen some effects even on the roadways too as more people jump into uh, cabs or drive to, to circumnavigate all of this. So it's really rippling out to everything. Colin? just wanted to point out that, you know, it's not like um, everyone's daily commutes are a breeze when there isn't a derailment on the MBTA. You know, this is really adding to what is already a frustrating situation for commuters trying to get in or out of Boston, either on the MBTA, on the commuter rail, or uh, by car. So the disruption this week has really just exacerbated mm-hmm. the problems uh, on every uh, across every uh, mode of transportation, really. Right. This is drawing even more attention to what's already sort of a regular under-the-breath complaint. Um, so Poftac, Steve Poftac, wants a fresh set of eyes, investigations opened as far as these derailments go. As far as longer-term improvements, Poftac and Governor Baker uh, have stressed this week that there are long-term improvements, but they take some years to realize. Yep, that's a common talking point for both of them, pointing to the $8 billion or so that the MBTA is planning to invest over the next five years in capital improvements to things like uh, modernizing the signal infrastructure, upgrading tracks. Um, We should have new red line trains by, what is it, 2023, I think, replacing the entire fleet. New orange line trains sometime before that, although that's been delayed a couple of times now. Um, You know, they are here. being met with quite a lot of frustration, at least more than I can recall in recent memory. And it's it seems like a common answer to point to, you know, we hear your complaints, but improvements are underway and being made. I think the big question that the governor and the general manager are going to have to grapple with is how patient commuters are willing to be for these improvements to come online. Yeah, you know, and I'll say too, we, um, a, a bunch of reporters yesterday um, were kind of peppering the governor with questions about this out in Charlestown when he was there for an education event and he he said he too would love to see everything get get fixed faster um of course he's not a regular t rider but he said the the issue is really you can't shut down the system you know for days at a time to do repairs um they work in the the limited off hours Sure. And uh, the Democratic Party, State Democratic Party, has uh, renewed calls for uh, Baker to ride the T, uh, which was um, a common chant uh, from the uh, Jay Gonzalez campaign um, during uh, last year's election. I think he, he dodged that question when uh, it was posed it directly out in Charlestown, uh, if I'm correct. Right, Katie? Yeah, he, he's never really um, gotten into the taking the bait, I guess, if, it, if you will, on the the calls for him to ride the tea from from democrats sure 
one other one other point I, I do think is worth noting, building on what, what Colin had pointed out earlier, that this is really underlining problems that we're feeling all across all modes of transportation. Kind of coincidentally, uh, on Tuesday, the same day that the red line train derailed, we had results come out from a, a Boston Globe Suffolk University poll that 61% of respondents uh, across all different travel types said that their commute has gotten worse in the last five years. So it's it's not just the derailments we're seeing. It really is basically any way you can think to get to and from work people seem to be fed up which my tuesday commute was a case in point on that um i usually take a bus to the orange line but the bus real-time bus data was not showing up on my app this that morning so i decided to drive instead of standing in the rain for an indeterminate amount of time and went roughly 10 miles per hour on my four mile commute on average and T-Riders get to look forward to next month's fare increases. Uh, I couldn't help but notice this week as I was stuck on overcrowded red line trains just crawling uh, through the downtown uh, that the T has already put up signs announcing the July 1 fare increases, uh, averaging about 6%. All right. Well, I'll maintain that my 14-minute walk to work is uh, still one of the better commutes. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, you can't see it, but we're all glaring at Sam. <laughs> now, Chris mentioned that new uh, Boston Globe Suffolk University poll uh, out this week, the, the one that says uh, 61% of polled base staters uh, have been having a worse time commuting to work and school. Um, that that poll also had a lot of other interesting points this week. Um, Governor Charlie Baker maintaining some very high approval ratings uh, and an interesting um, hypothetical Democratic gubernatorial primary between Marty Walsh and Maura Healy, uh, just about a draw, uh, 30-something percent for each. Uh, but Katie, um, that poll also found uh, that more than half of these uh, 600 registered voters in Massachusetts uh, would be comfortable paying higher taxes in order to boost education funding in Massachusetts. And we've talked about this on the podcast a number of times, uh, the efforts to reform ed funding and uh, about how a bill is uh, sort of expected to pop on Beacon Hill perhaps this month uh, in June. Uh, That hasn't happened yet, but uh, that potential lawsuit that had been hanging over lawmakers' heads up here uh, from uh, school parents and school children and and, and local advocacy groups, uh, that did come to pass this week. Um, Lawsuit alleging that the state hasn't lived up to its constitutional uh, responsibilities for funding public education. Um, What what are the details of of these allegations? That's right. Yeah, we had um, McDuffie in 1993 and Hancock in 2000. And now it looks like here in uh, 2019, we'll have DuPont Mousseau as the uh, trilogy in education funding reform lawsuits. That's Hmm. um, Denise DuPont-Mousseau of Fall River uh, with four children in Fall River Public Schools is one of several uh, named plaintiff in this lawsuit against state education officials, along with other students and parents from Chelsea, Chicopee, Haverhill, Lowell, Orange, and Springfield. Um, Notably, the the small town of Orange is in there um, with uh, folks from involved in the suit saying it isn't just a gateway cities issue it's rural communities it's all over the state um, that we are seeing they say these funding inequities disparities um, in creating according to the one of the lawyers involved in this Ivan uh, Espinosa Madrigal of the of lawyers for civil rights that it's a, a civil rights issue here that there it's 
essentially a, a segregation issue where it's, you know, you're seeing low income students of color um, receiving fewer opportunities and resources than their predominantly uh, white, wealthier peers. Um, and they're, they're saying that, you know, we do have that bill, those bills, those several bills, as we know, as we've talked about in committee, we have people talking about passing a bill this session, this summer, at some point in the future. It's it's out there. It's, you know, near term is the conversation. But they're, they're saying there has been legislative inaction. There has been kind of a, a willful ignorance or willingness to accept these disparities and and not enough action. And uh, what did the governor have to say about this lawsuit when you uh, you caught up with him yesterday? Well, um, as, as we as reporters all know, the first thing any uh, elected or appointed or otherwise political official is going to say when you ask them about pending litigation <laughs> is that they can't comment on pending litigation. So the governor wouldn't get into, you know, kind of the specifics of the lawsuit itself when I asked him if he thought the state was meeting its constitutional obligations around education. Um, but he did bring up and his education secretary, James Pizer, who's one of the defendants named in the suit, brought up the these efforts that are ongoing to pass a bill that they hope, you know, that whatever legislation ultimately comes out of this winding process will address the concerns of the complainants. Um, the governor pointed out that, you know, I, I asked him if he thought this would kind of dial up the pressure. And he said he doesn't think there needs to be more pressure at this point. <laughs> you know, I think we've all seen the pressure is there um, after the bill collapsed last summer um and you know the governor pointed out that he filed his bill in january the very start of the session in hopes of kick-starting his words the conversation um the legislature held a hearing on it early the education committee hearing was in march so there are indications that people you know want to get this done and now it's just a matter of, of waiting um th for the plaintiffs it, it doesn't seem like you know they'll be satisfied with just the passage of a bill of mm. an education funding reform bill regardless of what's in it uh juan cofield from the naacp said they're not going to be satisfied with something they want you know what they want which is a reform that they feel meets the constitutional obligation to cherish education yeah sounds like they want some kind of a, a really comprehensive uh, court decision like uh, that mcduffie uh, decision from the 90s that you mentioned right and that is uh you know it was the the mcduffie case that brought us education or that contributed to the education reform act of, of 1993 that established the the current school funding formula so you know it, it could be I, I don't want to speculate about where this case goes, but we could be looking at something of that magnitude, I, you know, just to do the thing I just said I didn't want to do and speculate. <laughs> hey, Sam. Yes, Colin. Would you believe it if I told you the legislature uh, did something this week to try to address both of these issues that we've been talking about so really? far? Really? They, they have a solution in mind, huh, for more funding for transportation and education? They, they indeed do. Huh, what do they propose? Well, they're proposing to amend the state constitution to allow them to tax uh, wealthy residents at a higher rate or to impose, excuse me, to oppose, impose an additional tax on wealthy residents. A surtax, as a A surtax, exactly. A 4% surtax on income over a million dollars with the idea that the roughly $2 billion that they would expect to generate from that surtax uh, could be spent to address 
the issues that we've talked about today around transportation and education. Hmm. Right, yeah. The uh, House and Senate met in a joint constitutional convention on Wednesday, and uh, they voted to agree to the amendment uh, proposal and advance it on to the next legislative session, right? And then it's after that that it could be put on the ballot for 2022. Exactly, exactly. So the joint session of the legislature uh, voted 147 to 48. Uh, They needed 101 votes. They cleared that easily. Uh, And really all this is is the first step in a multi-step process, as you said, Sam, to get this uh, before voters on the November 2022 ballot. Uh, This same measure will have to be approved by at least 101 lawmakers meeting in a joint session during the 2021-22 legislative session, uh, and then that would allow it to go before voters in November of 2022. On the same ballot as the next gubernatorial race. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I had to do a little math in my head there. Count to four. Uh, so we heard uh, during the Constitutional Convention on Wednesday, uh, we heard arguments both for and against. Of course, the supporters have said that these wealthy residents can afford to pay a little bit more um, and that that extra funding would benefit everyone in the state uh, by going to transportation infrastructure and education. And of course, opponents and business groups uh, have warned that if Massachusetts does adopt this income surtax, that it's going to drive employers and wealthy residents out of the state. Uh, And the Mass Taxpayers Foundation had some interesting data on that this week. Uh, Using the Department of Revenue projections, MTF said that this 4% surtax on income over a million dollars would raise $1.9 billion from just under 20,000 Massachusetts tax filers. That's one half of 1% of all taxpayers in the state who would uh, be affected by this surtax. Mm -hmm. But MTF said that uh, of those just under 20,000 taxpayers, it would be 900 of them uh, who earn more than $10 million a year who would end up contributing 53% of the total uh, that would be generated by this surtax. So that's putting a lot of eggs in, in the basket of a very small number of taxpayers. Exactly. And to the argument that um, this would cause these wealthy residents to flee, uh, if if that, that argument holds water and if it does cause people to flee, uh, if just one-third of those uh, 900 very high earners uh, were to leave Massachusetts, and obviously uh, the state would no longer get the uh, additional tax revenue, uh, MTF estimated that the uh, tax revenue generated by this surtax would drop by $744 million dollars wow. annually. So about a third or more than a third of the total projection uh, could be lost if w- just one third of those super high earners who take in more than $10 million a year uh, were to leave the state. Hmm. Yeah, we heard some some reps um, uh, arguing against this proposal and, and saw some vote against it whose districts are up toward the New Hampshire border. Um, and I think it was uh, Rep. Brad Hill who uh, specifically noted on the floor, New Hampshire is so close and it has uh, has no income tax. Yeah, that's right. That's um, a- another interesting uh, point that came from uh, this vote, which again wasn't to implement this, but just move this along to the next step of the process. Um, but we saw 11 House Democrats joining the Republicans in the chamber right. uh, to oppose the amendment. And we saw one Senate Republican join the Democrats in voting in favor of it. Um, 
and uh, Matt Murphy, who who wrote about this for us this week, also pointed out the uh, geography of some of the people who who voted no. You mentioned uh, some reps up along the New Hampshire border. Right. There's also a fair number uh, who voted in opposition of uh, to the amendment uh, from the Springfield area. Yes, you're right. Since it was debated and, and voted on last session, uh, it's picked up even more support in, in the House and Senate. Uh, and actually, I, I noticed um, on Wednesday that the highest-ranking Democrat to vote against it last time, uh, House Majority Leader Ron Mariano from Quincy, uh, voted for it this time. Um, sort of a notable, notable switch there. But Colin, as, as I've heard you say, um, this is still a long way off. The November 2022 ballot is a long way off. And uh, as you've said this week, uh, this won't satisfy uh, the folks standing on the red line platform or uh, crowding into no. a green bush commuter rail car. No, no, it's cold comfort being told, uh, wait till November 2022. And ditto that for the, the folks who are, you know, whose school budgets are hinging on whether a prop two and a half override passes this season indeed all right well hey thanks folks and uh have a good weekend oh and by the way um some other legislative action this week they set the date as i'm sure everyone will be seeing on tv from jordan's furniture and others soon um they set the date for the uh, sales tax holiday august 17th and 18th as we get ready for uh, back to school season yeah and i don't want to uh, let the podcast elapse without giving out a shout out to senator joan lovely's uh diaper duck drake who visited the state house this week um, I've been working on trying to get a podcast pun in here with like something about Bill as in beak and Ooh. Bill as in legislation, but it's been a long week and creativity has eluded me. So I'll just leave it at that. The diaper duck will have to do. All right. We're going to duck out of here. <laughs> hey, there you go. There it is. Hey, have a good one. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.